Criminals are obtaining access to individuals' uh, cell phones. So they're either uh, obtaining access to uh, a system that enables that, or they are social engineering someone who has access to that system in order to obtain access to that number and then use that to uh, get through multi-factor authentication that relies on access to that phone. So the shift again previously, you know, pretty heavily focused around uh, targeting social media accounts, um, but we've seen a shift in that towards targeting sort of other resources of value, such as cryptocurrency exchange accounts or wallets. Um, you know, there are pretty broad reports of this uh, in the public as well. Uh, people on social media who are closely involved in the cryptocurrency ecosystem who report having had their numbers swapped and uh, uh, their, their accounts drained. Welcome to another episode of the Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara, and joining me today for another Threat Trends episode, I have uh, two guests uh, talking uh, to us about what's happening in the cybercrime ecosystem, uh, two members of our financial crime analysis team. Kimberly, hopefully I got that right. Um, you just told me, so I should, uh, but uh, Kimberly Goody and Jeremy Kennelly uh, Jeremy, great to have you on for the first time, and Kimberly, great to have you back here again. So the idea for this episode, and we'll see how closely we stick to it, but the initial idea for this is let's do an episode looking at some of the trends that we saw in the cybercrime ecosystem and landscape last year um, that don't involve ransomware, um, which is a bit of a challenge to do, and I think we will probably end up back in that space at some point. Uh, but I think there is some interesting things that were going on um, around sort of uh, financial gain or, or financially motivated activity um, that were somewhat noteworthy. Um, some of it has to do with the tools being utilized. And again, some of this ties into ransomware-related activity. Um, but there were other things that were happening and, and maybe where we can start the conversation. Kimberly, I'll, I'll turn over to you, but um, banking trojans and malware. So this has been a space or a, an aspect of the cybercrime space for a while. When you think of some of the well-known banking trojans uh, and malware associated with that activity, they've been around for quite some time, but we've also started to see those tools over the years evolve and adapt, uh, be used for, for other types of activity, and we've seen geographic shifts. So when we think about that space, what did we see last year? Yeah, as, as you noted, yeah, it's, it's really hard to find any other topic besides ransomware. I feel like that is pretty much all the the activity that the team has focused on over the last two years, just because it's been so prevalent and prolific. Um, but as you know, like when we when we think about even some of the early days of when ransomware emerged, we did start to see some of these actors who were using banking malware kind of shift to those operations. Um, but I do think it's important to remember that you know, while a lot of those actors have shifted away into doing ransomware attacks, um, we still are seeing actors that are continuing with this more traditional banking operation. Um, and in, in these operations, their intent, just to remind people, is to effectively collect user credentials um, for different websites, whether that's banking sites, um, various cryptocurrency sites. We've even seen human resource 
um, related sites like Indeed or, or LinkedIn um, being targeted as well. And they're, they're trying to steal those users' credentials and, and do account takeover operations. Um, when they get into those um, bank accounts, they're often transferring that money into accounts that the threat actor controls. Um, and, you know, throughout 2022, we did see a significant decline in the number of new um, targeted patterns that the threat actors were looking for um, in terms of user credentials to steal. Um, in fact, there was a 77% decline, but we did start to see um, some new ones appear, um, particularly if we look at Ursniff. Um, this is a banking malware that's been around for many years now. Um, but just in you know the last couple of weeks, we actually started to see new financial institutions added to that target list. And in this case was actually associated with Japanese organizations, which is pretty interesting um, just to see you know some other regions add, added to the mix here because uh, oftentimes we do see targeting of, of the US. Yeah, and that seems to be something, you know, we see with other types of cybercrime activity is that it evolves and morphs. Um, and maybe where it begins being focused on uh, organizations or institutions in North America or EMEA, we see that geographic migration over time when they look to, to spread to new regions. I think you see this with other, well, I guess we're going to mention ransomware already off the bat, but I say like that's something we've seen, I think, in, in ransomware and, and something that we've noted in uh, some of the reporting that your team has produced is just how that geographic nature of the operations evolves over times and spreads to, to new geos. Yeah, of course. Um, Jeremy, I don't know if you if you wanted to weigh in or, or I can ramble on. It's up to you. Yeah, no, I mean, the, include that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, I mean, the overall trend there is a shift and this started a long time ago, right? The original changes from these bankers as data theft vehicles to being access vehicles or droppers, enabling access into networks. And it's not like we see a wholesale, wholesale shift back. Um, you know, it was always, they were always sort of serving that function in the background, but we do see that evolution kind of uh, uh, tiptoeing back across the line a little bit, right? However, you know, in parallel to that, as, as Kimberly specifically mentioned, um, you know, there are still other really prevalent banking Trojans that are further evolving towards use as early stage malware, such as Ursniff LDR4, um, which stripped away uh, sort of the remaining cladding it had that, uh, that, 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 that gave it any capabilities to perform uh, sort of traditional banking Trojan activity. Now, do we also want to touch on um, one of the things that we saw, I don't know how prevalent it was, um, you guys can speak to this, but one of the, the sets of activity we saw last year was SIM swapping, um, you know, as a technique, again, not a new one, but continued to see that in some of the um, incidents that we responded to uh, last year. What's what have we been seeing in that space? Yeah, SIM swapping is really interesting, uh, in large part, because, you know, the the actors that are employing it, although they may have some sort of loose connective tissue, are generally not sort of directly associated with the Russian-speaking criminal underground. This kind of comes out of a completely different ecosystem. Not ex Again, not exclusively English-speaking, but, you know, going sort of way back in time, it was a common uh, strategy, uh, primarily a social engineering strategy, uh, used by actors to originally steal things like uh, social media accounts that uh, were seen to have a high value on, a, on the sort of the, the, the market. So, you know, 
in in sum, just for you know to to, to provide a, a definition, right? It's a scheme where criminals are using um, criminals are obtaining access to individuals' uh, cell phones, so they're either uh, obtaining access to uh, a system that enables that or they are social engineering someone who has access to that system in order to obtain access to that number and then use that to uh, uh, get through multi-factor authentication that relies on access to that phone. So the shift again previously, you know, pretty heavily focused around uh, targeting social media accounts, um, but we've seen a shift in that towards targeting sort of other resources of value, such as cryptocurrency exchange accounts or wallets. Um, you know, there are pretty broad reports of this uh, in the public as well. Uh, people on social media who are closely involved in the cryptocurrency ecosystem who report having had their numbers swapped and uh, uh, their, their accounts drained. Uh, further to that, on the intrusion side, uh, we see a large amount of intrusion activity targeting uh, uh, business partners that work hand in glove with telecoms who are being targeted to, you know, not as an ends in itself, but as a tool to enable uh, access to SIM swapping resources. So they're using that, uh, that those intrusions to then uh, target any, any number of, of second order uh, uh, services. Gotcha. So similar to how we, I guess, are seeing, you know, banking malware being utilized, um, not just for kind of its intended purpose um, initially, but it's something that is useful for furtherance of other sets of activity. Um, that seems to be what we're seeing also in the sim swapping space. No, ex exactly. It's it's just a, a there's a community of, of actors who have developed a, a level of expertise and comfort with how you uh, execute this particular scheme. And they've sort of diversified, you know, their monetization strategy, right? They've continued to, you know, they have a tool that works and they're, they're deploying that tool in, in other venues. Now, one, one thing I think we probably should touch on just briefly, even though I think it's also been at fairly uh, low levels historically in comparison to other types of threat activity, um, as we've seen the shift again to, to ransomware. Still trying to avoid that, but we'll, we'll again, <laughs> delve into that as it happens. Um, point of sale malware, right? Uh, we don't seem to see that as much as we used to, given some of the, the changes, both, I think, on the security side of things, but then also um, with actors gravitating to other areas to make money. Is that still the case? Have we still seen, you know, kind of minimal uh, examples of, of point of sale malware last year? Yeah, at least from our viewpoint, when responding to incidents at clients, we're not really seeing point of sale malware intrusions. Um, these days, a lot of the actors who previously were behind those types of attacks, like Fin7, Fin8, um, Fin6 even, they've kind of shifted on to other uh, more lucrative activities, as you, know, you hinted at, um, a, a lot of the activity that we've tracked over the last year that has suspected ties to those actors um, have largely been focused on ransomware intrusion operations rather than stealing payment card data. Granted, like we still do see um, card shops operating in, in these underground communities and, and they're still advertising payment cards, um, but we're not really seeing the point of sale malware intrusions targeting um, corporations like we had in the past. Gotcha. 
So let's talk a little bit about the shifts in tooling and techniques um, and some of the areas where we have observed threat actors experimenting with different tools, experimenting with different file types in the furtherance of their activity. Because I think there's some interesting stuff that's been going on there. Again, some of this ties back into you know ransomware and extortion-based activity, uh, but not always. Um, and I think maybe where we can start with that is the conversation around macros and what we saw last year in the shift away from macro usage. Yeah, so you know, throughout this past year, we started seeing actors shifting from using malicious macros, um, specifically beginning in February of 2022. That's when we started to see a significant increase in the use of LNK files to deliver a bunch of different malware families, um, many of which are well known, like Emotet, XID, CACBOT. Um, and for the campaigns that we monitored, when we looked at just from February to April of 2022, we saw more than a 200% increase in the number of L LNK files that were used for distribution. Um, and this initially um, was, you know, based on our assessment, um, prompted by Microsoft's announcement in February that they were going um, to block macros um, by default for office documents that were downloaded from the internet. And so threat actors are paying attention to, to what's happening out there and they're constantly looking for ways that they can adjust their operations in order to make them more successful. Um, and so really, I think that that was kind of the kickoff that led us to seeing a lot of different file types used throughout the year, throughout this past year for distribution of, of various malware families. Yeah. Um Threat actors have diversified the sort of the types of files they're using in emails beyond even LNKs, right? They're clearly engaged in ongoing research to identify new flexible delivery mechanisms. Uh, an interesting one that we've seen heavily sort of distributing pretty novel malware, including Mountain Bucus, Shell Sting, and Quackbot involves a technique known as HTML smuggling. Uh, HTML smuggling is when uh, you know an email will have an HTML attachment that contains embedded JavaScript, uh, which processes other encoded content, either drop something or download a secondary payload. Um, attackers likely started using HTML smuggling in response to many detection tools not really having been instrumented to identify encoded malicious content within HTML files in this way. You know, new attack vectors can be successful even if they seem pretty inelegant or unwieldy simply because, because they aren't things that defenders are focused on identifying. They don't need to hook everyone, just enough victims to keep themselves busy. And, you know, the novel use of new file types and execution strategies goes far beyond LNKs and HTML smuggling. Like another common class of file we've seen them using as attachments are sort of different sorts of disk images, such as ISOs, IMG files, and VHDs. You know, again, this is another case where attackers have kind of given up on the simplicity of a, a macro document, which can really fit neatly into a social engineering scheme. But in return, they get the benefit of kind of making defenders' lives harder, making it more difficult to identify exactly what they're going to be delivering, how it's going to be executing, and what it's going to look like, like to both detect and prevent. That's a good point. And I think even just beyond um, savvy network defenders, but also when you think about 
um, you know, office personnel and, and individuals within the organization that have gone through spear phishing training and often the sort of default examples they're given are, you know, be careful about opening that PDF or that Word doc. Um, and, you know, maybe they're not thinking through uh, or expecting as much that you would see other types of file types be used uh, in this manner. Um, I, I know another one that um, even I think towards the tail end of last year was getting some discussion um, given an FBI warning that came out was around malicious advertising. So this seems to be another trend that, that we've been seeing. Um, what's kind of happening in that space? What's going on with malicious advertising and how it plays into the, the criminal threat landscape? Yeah. So, you know, just to be clear, it's not, this isn't really a brand new scheme. Like threat actors have been distributing malware through advertising for, you know, a, a while, but I think one of the, um, more interesting things recently is that we're seeing malware that we would typically associate with more sophisticated operations or even some of those malware families that we see used as a precursor for these ransomware intrusions being distributed in this manner. Um, and so just so everybody is on the same page, whenever we are talking about malware distribution um, through advertising, what this looks like from the user perspective is you know, let's say that you need to download a tool um, like 7-Zip, and so you do a search for this um, via your search engine, um, and in the results, there may be an advertisement or maybe the threat actor has used um, search engine optimization techniques um, in order to get their, you know, malicious website ranked higher in the search results. And so you, as a, as a user, you don't really notice um, this when you navigate to it, but you're actually navigating to a malicious domain that oftentimes is mimicking that original software that you went to download. Um, but instead of taking you to the legitimate download, um, it's taking you to this website that looks nearly identical where you click to download a file and, and that file is actually malware. Um, and so we've seen a bunch of cases of various families um, that historically have you know, some of those banking malware families, for example, like Ice ID or, um, or um, Silent Night or, or what others call Z-Loader have been distributed in this manner. Um, and so it's, I think, getting a lot more attention these days just because some of the some of these actors are using it as a precursor for, for these more sophisticated ransomware attacks. So would it be fair to say that we're seeing both, you know, with respect to the shift away from macros and then also the the utilization of malicious advertising, um, we're seeing sort of greater experimentation um, and willingness to try new delivery techniques amongst a variety of actors in this space? I think that, you know, it's only partially that, right? I think as, as Kimberly noted, you know, malicious advertising is not strictly a new vector, right? Either by these sort of more sophisticated actors um, or by threat actors in general. So malvertising has been a, a long-tracked and identified threat vector. Um, but again, as, as you noted, you know, it's, it's sort of being perceived as newly explosive because sophisticated actors have uh, more visibly shifted towards it, right? Which, which may be, you know, in some sense related to uh, a perceived need to diversify their operations. You know, Iced ID is one of the malware families sort of that we've seen coming through malvertising recently um, that I think, you know, the, the larger threat ecosystem or the larger ecosystem of researchers has kind of really 
identified as being particularly noteworthy, which which it of course is, right? Ice ID is malware historically uh, serving as a banking trojan, as we noted before, now being used as a dropper uh, to provide sort of initial access into victim networks. And it's always had kind of a close historical association with actors involved in sort of the larger TrickBot and Conti ecosystem, right? Ice ID was has primarily historically been delivered via uh, email campaigns, either uh, directly or as a secondary payload. And we're now seeing cases, of course, where it's being deliver, delivered via uh, malicious advertising, uh, particularly in infection chains suggestive of sort of spoofed software download sites. You know, again, this is, you know, we're, we're kind of veering somewhat back into ransomware territory at this point. Um, and that's, and I, and I kind of say that just to say that, again, this is being used as an initial access vector. And, you know, it poses a significant risk and has a history of leading to uh, uh, intrusions where ransomware is distributed. Yeah, just um, one one note to add there, too, is that, you know, there are, um, as I noted before, like a bunch of different um, information stealers that are being distributed through this vector. So, you know, to kind of look back at like what other non-ransomware activity is occurring, right? These um, info stealers can be used to steal user credentials um, or um, rather consumers, uh, cryptocurrency wallets. Um, and so threat actors can obtain money from other ways by targeting individuals like you and me, rather than just solely going after corporations. And they have mechanisms in place to be able to determine whether or not a particular victim is a corporation and should be exploited by doing something like deploying ransomware or whether or not it is an individual who maybe they can just steal some funds from. So, you know, they're not necessarily, um, they're kind of open to whatever ways that they can make money. And so I think this kind of technique that's kind of, you know, let's conduct these mass operations and then let's filter down and, and kind of sort out or maybe hand out um, accesses to different people um, depending on on what kind they have um, helps them diversify their their monetization schemes. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, also, just thinking about that in parallel of the, the recent episode we did around, or it touched on some of the, the recent activity from Turla and the usage of the Andromeda uh, botnet. Um, and I think just sort of the interesting parallel to what you're talking about there with sort of initial access um, being gained through a variety of different means, some of which you know, have been around for some time, but maybe haven't been used in the same way by certain sets of actors. Um, and in the case of, you know, what we're talking about here, the types of actors we're, we're discussing, you know, they are maybe less picky than, let's say, a cyber espionage group that's looking for particular kinds of information and access. And they might have a variety of means of monetizing access to any given, you know, host or system or network. So it's sort of interesting to see the parallel there in, in the experimentation and utilization of these different in, in intrusion vectors, um, but then also uh, what they can do and how they might use that uh, once they actually get onto the, the host or the, again, the network. Um, so moving on to maybe another area where we see sort of experimentation, I think this is, is maybe a space we can talk about a little bit. Um, maybe some of the, the rationale behind maybe techniques that have been around for a while um, and that kind of fall in and out of favor. And then also where we see threat actors experimenting with new tools. And this is maybe um, the shift away from um, or, or shift towards 
adopting or, or playing around with other sort of pen testing frameworks and tools such as Cobalt Strike. Um, last year, I believe Cobalt Strike Beacon was, was the number one uh, piece of malware that we observed um, or up in the, the top three for sure. I'm sure in M-Trends this year, it's going to be also you know highly ranked up there. We see it everywhere. Again, low and, and high level, uh, high skilled threat actors across different adversary motivations. But it's certainly not the only game in town, and we see other tools being used. So what have we kind of seen last year in, in that space with experimentation of different tools? Yeah, so I, I can't remember who put out an article, but at some point in, in 2022, um, somebody put out an article about threat actors using Brute Retell. And I think there, that kind of spun off this wave of articles being like threat actors are, you know, shifting away from Beacon into using um, Brute Retell. And so, you know, as an analyst, I'm like, okay, well, is that actually true? Because it's not uncommon for things to kind of get fun in, in some way that that's a little bit inaccurate. Um, and so we wanted to do a look back of, you know, what have we actually seen in our intrusion data throughout 2022? Um, and then also, what have we seen in underground communities? Um, and so when we looked over the past year, in these communities, we did see threat actors making references to various tools. Um, like Sliver, Covenant, uh, Core Impact, Brute Retail. Um, most of those conversations were related to Brute Retail and Core Impact. Um, specifically in some of these conversations, they the actors were directly talking about these tools um, as an alternative to Cobalt Strike and provided comparisons on you know if, if they've had success with one versus another. Um, one actor, which was kind of interesting, uh, made a comment stating that, you know, Brute Retail was less popular and because of that, it would give an advantage in bypassing detections. Um, an interesting note there too is that we did see a cracked version of Brute Retail that was leaked for free in underground communities in September 2022. Um, and what we often see with um, some of these like leaked or cracked versions when they're posted in forums that can lead to more wide adoption by a variety of threat actors because you know they didn't previously have access to it now they do of course they're they're gonna experiment um see whether or not they have success and and over time as they get comfortable with it um you might see them use it more or they might try it out and they might not like it right and so at least initially you often see kind of this little bit of spike while they while they test it out um, beyond looking at the forums, um, we did see some operations where other tools were incorporated by actors who previously had used Beacon. Um, the most notable example of that was a suspected FIN7 cluster that we track. Um, and we saw them start to use Impact Agent, which is the backdoor component of the core impact framework. Um, that particular example is, is also interesting to me because um, it does kind of highlight how, you know, looking at what's happening in these underground communities can give you kind of this early warning signal of what threat actors might do next. And right, that's what we as analysts always want to kind of anticipate. It's like, okay, great, we know what they're doing today, but what are they going to be doing tomorrow? Because that's ultimately how we can best protect our customers. Um, and what we saw was one of the actors that we monitored who we believe is associated with this threat cluster, um, just weeks before we saw Impact Agent being used in 
um, by this by this threat actor. And we saw a, a forum persona post in an underground community looking to purchase core impact. And then, you know, flash forward a few weeks and, and we see um, a group that we believe associated with that same actor actually using um, the impact agent backdoor. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting, too. Yeah. And kind of kind of rewinding a little bit, too, to sort of uh, think through the history of this a little bit. Right. As uh, as was noted, you know, we've seen Beacon as sort of the primary um, you know, post-exploitation tool of choice for actors kind of, sort of uh, across the spectrum. Um, you know, but this wasn't always the case. Historically, tools such as, even though, even though uh, you know, Cobalt Strike has been available commercially for quite a while in crack copies and, and, and you know, legitimate, you know, M- uh, PowerShell Empire and Metasploit at one point were much, much more prevalent, right? You know, and starting just a couple of years ago, we saw a huge spike in the use of Beacon and a complete drop-off, uh, particularly in the use of PowerShell Empire, uh, which kind of coincided with the project being deprecated. But uh, even a drop-off in Metasploit, although it does, you know, commonly get used in, you know, in tandem with Beacon as well. You know, there's always been somewhat of an ebb and a flow of the frameworks that we see being used, but there has been this sort of continuing prevalence of Beacon. You know, it's kind of interesting to know to highlight sort of what the history of this looked like a little bit. You know, in the early days of Fin6's foray into extortion operations, uh, Mandiant, you know, had seen three distinct individuals uh, sort of working through a sp- single victim network. And in this case, each of them was using a different attack framework. Uh, you know, and so that, that just kind of goes to highlight that to some degree, there is a sense of sort of personal preference or familiarity that has driven some of the diversity we've seen as well, you know, and, and completely unrelated to that activity and highlighted in the, the leaked Conti leaks chats, you know, we see additional evidence of actors running intrusions and, you know, they were somewhat ambivalent to which attack tools or frameworks their operators were using. In some cases, just saying, you know, I don't care if you share a server with your teammates or use your own or whatever you do, just make sure you're, you know, make sure you're working, right? Um, And so, you know, we also saw actors kind of discussing this shift between different frameworks as well, right? And in a case, um, you know, that, you know, in one kind of notable case, we saw actors complaining that their beacon payloads were getting killed. They weren't able to maintain access. Uh, probably due to some configuration or security policy at the victim. And they all shifted to using a different framework live sort of in the environment simultaneously. So this is a case where, um, you know, their, you know the, the, their decision can be driven by practicalities and change over time as even, you know, the version of Cobalt Strike that they're using is updated. Potentially they get access to a new cracked copy or, you know, new signatures are deployed at a particular environment or across a particular common uh, sort of defender's tool set, you know. Um, it's also important to note that in a lot of cases, we do see these actors using these frameworks in tandem, as I previously suggested, right? So, you know, uh, we talk about actors using 
um, you know, core impact and using Metasploit and shifting towards Beacon. But these tools also do have some differing functionality, right? With core impact and Metasploit both serving more as tools to obtain access to environments, whereas Beacon is more focused on sort of uh, operator collaboration and lateral movement. That's, that's, I think, you know, very important kind of history to note there um, with the utilization of these tools. One question I had just thinking as you were, you were saying that, are we seeing then, you know, with respect to sort of post-exploitation frameworks and, and these sorts of tools, any that are allowing for a new class of actors, thinking more like lower skill threat actors to enter the space in a way we haven't in the past? Or are we more just seeing experimentation, personal preference, you know, switching between different tools amongst actors that are already kind of established in doing this sort of work. Any of these tools to you and, and the adoption that we've seen to date sort of hint at, you know, maybe a growing expansion of the types of threat actors that are involved in the, in the financial crime ecosystem? I don't know that I have concrete evidence of that fact, but it almost certainly must be the case to some degree, simply because uh, things like Cobalt Strike and Brute Retail, are, those are both commercial software packages, right? So to obtain those, you're either buying them legitimately or you're obtaining a cracked copy, which suggests, you know, that the, the bar is not really high, but it suggests some sort of association to a, a criminal underground or even just access to a, you know, a low-level hacker forum. We'll, we'll get you that. But some of these other tools, such as, say, Posh C2, uh, and Sliver, these are things that are accessible on GitHub, right? So sort of the public availability of some of these tool sets almost certainly must uh, sort of open the door for some some actors who may not who, who may not otherwise have that opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess we've, we've danced around it long enough, and I said we weren't going to try to talk on it as much as, as possible, but I think we do have to touch on you know what is still uh, the predominance of the threat activity that you guys are involved in, in responding to and dealing with and tracking and analyzing and sort of extortive behavior, um, a lot of which historically bit has been ransomware itself, but it seems that we are seeing a shift from more groups and more operations um, that are utilizing data theft as the primary extortive action or behavior. Um, so even though I said we were trying to, to do this episode, focusing around other things, um, maybe I'll cheat a little bit and say, let's let's talk maybe about the, the data theft aspect of extortion. How much of what we are seeing to date has been groups, you know, evolving and shifting into doing that primarily versus actually deploying ransomware and that being kind of the primary extortive function? Yeah, so I'm not going to directly answer your question right off the bat, but before I forget, I wanted to point out, you know, when we're talking about less sophisticated threat actors um, and, and enabling them or, or those um, that are, you know, maybe picking up on some of this activity that, that does kind of make the headlines, I think, you know, where we see that happen or where we've seen that happen over the last year that's that's kind of interesting is with this data theft extortion. Um, there are certainly groups that, you know, do have previously known ties to ransomware operations. For example, um, Karakurt, which we track as UNC 3316. Um, the threat actors involved in that operation are suspected to have ties to Conti ransomware as well. Um, but then we do see other threat actors in this space 
who don't necessarily have well-established ties to known ransomware operations. And in those cases, what we have seen is some of those groups are kind of going for the low-hanging fruit. Um, they may be looking for internet-facing um, resources um, that are exposed and contain data from organizations and, and just kind of stealing the data from there versus kind of conducting these more extensive intrusions where you gain access, you move around, you find data to exfil. They're kind of just, it's kind of more of this smash and grab operation, I would say. Um, and so there are kind of lower technical sophisticated actors that are conducting those types of operations and holding victims data for for ransom and those groups you're, you're saying they're not working with initial access providers they're actually doing that work themselves yeah jeremy i don't know if you want to speak a little bit more to um lapsus as as one example um but i i guess one caveat that i would say here is you know the the cybercrime ecosystem is is very vast and the way that threat actors can gain access to organizations is also vast like they can conduct these spam campaigns or hire somebody to do it um, to distribute um, some sort of malware to gain a foothold uh, but they can also do things like purchase you know um, info stealer logs from even telegram channels right and those could just contain user credentials and now they have the user credentials and maybe that um, organization doesn't have two factors set up or maybe they use that in conjunction with sim swapping and so um, they're just able to gain access to a particular account through that vector um, which you know really doesn't require a lot of technical sophistication because there are so many different enabling services within these communities that can allow them to kind of piecemeal their operations together by um, outsourcing, you know, little components or, or just purchasing something from another threat actor. Yeah. And so I think from the perspective of the term sort of initial access broker, which is generally in our kind of, um, you know, in our world, we're talking, you know, operations that are sort of uh, sort of distributing malware or brute forcing on a regular basis, sort of continuous sort of um, kind of freight trains of threat activity that are focused on obtaining access and then selling that off via some mechanism, right? I think that these sort of large organized initial access brokers aren't necessarily what you might see sort of like a lower level uh, threat actor using to obtain access into a network. But again, as Kimberly noted, you know, uh, the tele, you know, red line stealer telegram channels you know, um, you know, people posting on English language, you know, semi-public uh, underground forums. Um, you know, there, you know, there's there's lots of different venues where access can be obtained, and there's, you know, you see, you know, in the case of Lapsus, for example, right, and other sort of similar clusters of activity, those groups would specifically solicit for access. You know, they they sort of had a, a generalized interest in particular types of intrusion activity, and they solicited among you know a, a large group of individuals in their in their Telegram channels who were sort of listening and watching, and they had lots of different sort of uh, vectors available to them. So I think that um, you know from that perspective, the sort of technical threshold is is quite low, and the avenues of opportunity are quite 
broad. You know, there's no single means that we would expect these groups to be obtaining access uh, to the degree that something like that can even be considered like a single unified group. So, I mean, looking at the history of ransomware and, you know, seeing it you know, evolve and morph into multi-factored extortion, um, you know, where they are, you know, stealing data and then leaking that out through the, the data leak sites and the naming and shaming activity. And that sort of get demonstrated and proven as a business model. Um, and of course, you know, seeing the migration of actors that were, you know, doing point of sale malware, you know, five or six years ago, and then now have shifted into ransomware. Do you think that this is the, the next evolution of the extortion ecosystem? I mean, we've seen extortion evolve and take di different forms over the years. We have, you know, DD4BC and groups that for a time back when DDoS was really hot, you know, we're using that as an extortive uh, vector. Do you think that, you know, data leaks and data leak sites, the naming and shaming, is that where this activity is going to increasingly evolve to? Or are we still likely to always be stuck with some form of ransomware? I don't know that it's really that simple to predict. I think that, you know, uh, ransomware itself completely going away would likely rely on, you know, uh, heavy sort of uh, government crackdowns on actors specifically deploying that type of malware or, you know, some evolution in the technical controls available to organizations to really prevent its execution wholesale. I think outside of that, we're not going to see it go away. But really, I think it's almost unhelpful to think of these as two different classes of activity. You know, ransomware is just one of the tools that's available to criminals to uh, sort of get uh, an, ex you know, to, to, to successfully extort a victim, right? So uh, data theft, you know, you are potentially making their data unavailable if you've deleted it or, or whatever else, or, but you are threatening sort of bad press. You are threatening to release information that's going to harm a business in some way. Uh, ransomware, you're simply uh, disrupting their ability to do business. And I think these are all sort of uh, levers on the same machine. And, you know, we also have things such as, you know, <clears throat> you know, uh, historically, some of these actors have uh, called and threatened people in organizations. They have, you know, performed denial of service attacks, right? Similar to the DD4BC, which you mentioned previously. And so there's, there's a whole bunch of levers on this machine, uh, but the scheme itself is, is extortion. And I think that, you know, we will... Again, barring some major sea change, ransomware proper is unlikely to go away. But I think that it will become more difficult to distinguish, you know, this, you know, call this ransomware and that's extortion and data theft. And, and this is something else. I think that, you know, it becomes maybe both less useful and less possible to, to disambiguate all of these things. Um, just, you know, one note to add, too, is ransomware itself as a concept has been around for a long time as well um i think we as uh, as people who who work for a company that's generally you know protecting corporations uh, um you know maybe it hasn't always been at the the forefront of our mind but ransomware itself has been around for like a decade now um and so if you think about it from that perspective um it's unlikely to go away. It certainly could evolve. Um, and, and we still continue to see evolutions in this space. 
Um, you know, just over this past year, there were a bunch of um, even, you know, existing ransom families that, that rewrote their code um, for their malware in Rust. So we still continue to see evolutions in this space. Um, and I think that that's something that we'll continue to see. Um, threat actors looking for ways to evade detection, um, looking for ways to apply pressure to organizations, looking for other ways in which they can monetize um, the data that they've stolen, for example. So I think there's still opportunities to kind of, you know, see evolution in the extortion space. Um, it's definitely, you know, the flavor of the, the day. And I, I don't think that we're likely to see any significant changes um, throughout 2023. Um, I don't think we're going to continue to see spikes like we have in, in prior years. Um, but I do still think that there's going to be this, you know, constant kind of ex extortion activity um, with with some evolution th throughout this year. Yeah, I started this podcast saying we weren't going to talk about ransomware, and then I ended it by asking the uh, what is I think the hardest and the billion dollar question around uh, what is the future of ransomware. Um, but those are all good points, um, and also you know hit home as to why um, you know we we shouldn't expect to to see this go away um, in the foreseeable future, unfortunately. Um, Kimberly, Jeremy, this has been a great conversation. Again, I somewhat inartfully tried to link uh, a bunch of different topics of what's going on in, in this space. Um, but any sort of final thoughts when you think back to sort of trends that we saw in the cybercrime ecosystem last year or things that you're kind of watching, signals to look for, um, for folks that want to follow the space going forward um, in 2023, what's some things that they should maybe keep in mind to look for maybe potential changes in, in the landscape? I mean, like, I think the, the answer we gave to the sort of ransomware extortion question is kind of sort of tied up into the whole, you know, state of the world looking forward, right? You know, we do, we do see some kind of canaries in the activity we've been talking about, right? Kimberly mentioned that there are banking Trojans that have been adding, you know, despite the shift we see a lot towards droppers initial access, you know, we do see some of them adding new web injects, right? Which suggests, you know, not 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 a shift away, but, you know, at least a diversification. Whereas we've seen over the past few years, all of these actors who were engaged in, say, point of sale attacks and ATM attacks and, you know, a more diverse set of threat activity. We've seen a lot of these major intrusion operators really crystallize towards ransomware. And we saw, you know, uh, you know, banking Trojans dropping their, you know, wholesale dropping their capability of doing banking Trojan stuff, right? So the, the, the fact that we see some small shifts back towards, um, you know, in, in, you know, in in sort of um, uh, while we also see sort of external reports of, you know, cre credible or not, um, of say, you know, ransom payment rates going down, right? Um, you know, things like this likely don't again suggest a that, that ransomware extortion is going away, but it may suggest that outside of certain communities, it's not seen as as lucrative or simple as it once was in the past to turn uh, access into a network into a, a, a payment in Bitcoin, right? So it is possible that um, we may see some sort of growth around the periphery 
of some of the things we've talked about today. Yeah, and I think there's you know there's certainly other areas of uh, financially motivated activity we didn't even get into today, uh, like cryptocurrency miners. Um, and I think you actually noted uh, both of you in some of the early answers of how a lot of the activity we see is also furtherance um, of campaigns, you know, targeting that space. So there's a whole lot going on here, but I think this has been a, a very insightful conversation into um, what some of the trends are, um, how it's shaping the environment, some of the tools um, that we're seeing usage around and some of the techniques that, um, some of which may be old and some of the tools themselves may, be, may have been around here for a while, but maybe um, actors are finding new ways to gain leverage from them. So a fascinating space to watch uh, throughout this year as always. And Kimberly, Jeremy, thanks for, uh, for joining today. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us.